Bibles this morning, please turn again to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What is so great about the gospel? Why is it such a big deal? We really can't answer that question until we realize how dead we are in our own trespasses and sins, our own fleshly desires. For those of us who are believers, we still won't understand it until we get some sense of the fact that if it wasn't for a miracle of God's grace happening to us, we wouldn't believe yet either. And do we realize how impossible it is, literally impossible in every conceivable way for us, to be restored to a right relationship with God on our own. It's not that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't answer our most important questions or doesn't meet our most pressing needs. It's that we don't know the most important questions to ask because we are lost and dead in our sins and in our flesh. We don't know our deepest needs. We only know what we can feel, what we can perceive And realize the Bible was written for God to reveal Himself and His plan to redeem us. In the Gospel of God concerning His Son, the story and the meaning of Scripture, all the Bible is finally, perfectly revealed. Everything that God has planned to do for humanity since before He created anything is being revealed to us through the Gospel. The message of redemption through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God granted to us so that we actually obtain it. This is the center of all Scripture. This is what the Bible is about. And Paul wrote the letter of Romans to prove just that. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God that accomplishes salvation and the righteousness He accepts in order for us to be restored to a right relationship with our Creator have finally been revealed. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank You for Your perfect Word. Your Son, Jesus Christ, revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. Father, I ask that You would watch over my mind today, guard my mouth. Lord, may the meditation of my heart and my words be pleasing in Your sight, my rock and my Redeemer. I pray for all those that are listening this morning, God, and I ask you in your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to open everyone's ears, enable them to understand, enable us to receive what you have given all of us, Father. I pray this message would be to that end and no other, and this I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 8 of Romans chapter 1. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise 
and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul begins this letter with gratitude and excitement that there's a Christian presence, a Christian witness in the great city of Rome, the capital of the empire. The Roman Christians are a part of this intended harvest that God has from all the nations. Paul praises God then that they have given the obedience of faith. He tells them he actively prays for them, desires so much to come and visit them in order to impart some spiritual gift to them in verse 11 to strengthen them and their faith. Beloved, by the way, that's what spiritual gifts are for. They're not for the individual. They're not for ourselves. This is so important. They are not a platform for us to share our talents. They're not given to us that we might use them for our own advancement or to make sure that we have a voice in the church. They are for the sake of strengthening the body of Christ around us. Paul wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them. And he wants to be a part of reaping the harvest in Rome that God is doing also. The reason for that in verses 14 and 15 is that Paul is also under obligation to them. What's this obligation he's talking about both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish? If you weren't a Greek, if you weren't, in other words, a part of Roman culture that comes out of Greek culture, you would have been considered an uneducated backwoods Barbarian, At best, Paul says he's obligated to proclaim the gospel that saves sinners to every kind of person in the world. And notice this, beloved, we are not obligated to God to share his gospel so much. We are obligated, we read, to every single human being to share the gospel that saved us with them because we are no different from any of them. Why do we have it and they don't? Grace In our need for salvation, we are all the same. The same amount of salvation and forgiveness, the same amount of righteousness is needed by every single human being on the face of the earth. Therefore, we are obligated to every single human being on the face of the earth. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls on the earth. God's grace doesn't indebt us to Him. The debt is paid. It does indebt us to the world. God doesn't need our good works. God certainly doesn't need our evangelism. But our neighbors and our enemies need both. Now remember that one of the reasons Paul is visiting Rome is to gain support for this mission he's on to Spain. The influential Jewish Christians in Rome, if they will support him, he hopes that he will encourage the Jewish Christians that are waiting in Jerusalem to accept an offering from the one that's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which was a scandal. This sounds like a very nice, charitable, good deed that Paul is doing for the saints in Jerusalem. It isn't dangerous. It isn't controversial at all, but it was very much both. For Paul to deliver this offering to Jerusalem was an expression of fellowship in the gospel between Rome, the capital of the Roman oppressive persecuting empire, with Jerusalem. And it was an expression of fellowship in the gospel. But the message of the gospel that meant the full inclusion of Gentiles was extremely provocative in Jerusalem. And to bring an offering to them could have been considered and was by many insulting. How could Jews be in fellowship with uncircumcised, faith alone, free from the law Christians? 
Some of those among the Christians in Jerusalem were Christian in name only. And already were questioning and criticizing Paul as we see in so many of his other letters. In Acts at this time, there were Jews from Asia who were intent on killing Paul. Literally taking his life precisely because of the fact that he's on this mission to Rome and then on to Spain to more Gentiles. So this whole situation is very dangerous for Paul. There are those literally out to kill him over what he's saying. And yet in verse 15, he is eager. He's excited to keep on preaching the very gospel that is endangering his life to the Christian's in Rome, beloved, the proclamation of the gospel angers, insults, offends even those who know the scriptures and at least claim to worship Paul's God. So let it be no mistake, no shock to us that this is often the case today among those that would consider themselves super Christians. The gospel is insulting. It's tiring. I already know that I'm saved. I'm already doing what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do to get better and be more righteous. And so it's bothersome as though grace is in the periphery. It was just for the beginning. It got me saved. It doesn't keep me saved. I keep me saved. Nobody says that because we know it's wrong, but that's how we live. We live as though our salvation depended on us. But the pure gospel is insulting. And people will say, don't make it sound so good. Don't make it sound so easy. Rein it in. Right again, why is it such a big deal? Why was it so controversial? What about the gospel, which is the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of sinners apart from any merit, any contribution or works of our own? Why is that so offensive? Not just to the world and the irreligious, but the very religious. Why is it so necessary to silence this message? Why are even Christians often so ashamed to preach it in all its beautiful glory? As though if you preach it how God gave it, and like it sounds when you read it, it's too dangerous. And why wasn't Paul in his capacity as an apostle going to stop proclaiming what would in fact eventually literally, literally get this man killed, get his head cut off in Rome. Well, he tells us why in verse 16. And here it is. Here's Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is he so passionate to keep preaching it in spite of all the fallout and all the threats? Why isn't Paul ashamed of this message? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, absolutely, but also just as much to the Greek. Here in verses 16 and 17, Paul is clarifying the topic he plans to speak about in Romans. The gospel as the message of justification from God that a person only receives by faith, by believing the promise God has made to save those who do so. All the power necessary to bring about the obedience of faith in Christ from verse 5 is in the gospel Paul preached. You don't need extra classes. For the gospel, you don't need extra wisdom or extra insight or extra goodness. We need one message, 
one to be what God desires us to be. Now, it would make sense in a cosmopolitan metropolis at that time like Rome that a message about a crucified criminal as its focus is embarrassing and a little shameful, but not to Paul. Paul says that what no human doctrine or worldly philosophy or personal journey could ever even hope to accomplish, the gospel accomplishes completely. Just this one message about this crucified criminal who, by the way, three days later rose from the dead. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God reveals that all sin is forgiven. Not when one does well enough, tries hard enough, accomplishes enough. In the gospel, the righteousness God requires a person to have is granted to the one who has faith that Jesus does all of this for us. All Christianity is, is believing a promise, receiving what has been said. That's all it is. Paul argues that this is the very point God had been making in the Old Testament. Even before creation, we find. This was the goal of his plan, a plan that involved Israel and the patriarchs. His heart was always to make the people of the world his people by grace through faith. The gospel was not originally given to the Gentiles, though. It wasn't given to those outside of Israel. It was first revealed to the Jewish people. So it makes perfect sense in God's timing and his design that the Jewish people are the first to receive it or the first to be its missionaries and therefore its first audience. Gentiles have to be grafted into God's vine, but the priority of the Jews we find in Romans cuts both ways. Not only were they the first to receive salvation, Paul reveals they will be the first to receive judgment for rejecting it. Beloved, don't make light then of the knowledge God grants you to receive. Don't ignore the day of God's visit to you. And He's visiting you every time you open His Word. Every time we're here, every time you're reading, every time you're thinking of Him. Don't ignore what is being said. Don't neglect what is being said. Not because it's me, but because it's the Gospel. So this reveals to us, when Paul says things like this, when he levels the playing field throughout Romans... Just how much salvation, full salvation is needed by all. Right? It's it's not something that some of us are more prone to accept or likely to accept. Even the people that had all the priority, all the benefits, all the advantages and blessings, like many of us did, having grown up in Christian homes. Thank God for that gift to us. But having that doesn't guarantee anything. The Jews that had all the blessings, all the advantages, came up woefully short and never obtained the promise of God's blessing because their sin and self-centeredness were simply too great. They're just like us. And Paul understands you would have thought that they would be ahead of the curve and all the law did was expose how far behind it they are like the rest of us. The Jews thought they could obtain the promise made to Abraham as his natural descendants if they kept his covenant. And in order to do that, they had to work very hard to please God. The Pharisees came along after the prophet Malachi spoke in that 400-year period between, in our Bibles, Malachi and Matthew, basically the coming of Christ, the end of the Old Testament. The synagogue came about during that time. God never prescribed that. 
Israel created that on its own. The Pharisees and their purpose was to say, if you want to be God's child, you need to make sure you're doing A, B, C, and D. And it went well beyond the law because that's what our hearts will do. When God gives us a command, rather than understanding we can't do it, because if we did, why did Jesus, if we could, why did Jesus die? Instead of it, we take it as a challenge, an invitation to earn. And it's not. Its first purpose of the letter is to kill Not to make alive, not to bring your will to life. The law will bring sin to life. Not because it is bad, but because we are inherently evil. They tried to work, they tried to obtain the promise by work instead of by faith. And Paul says that's precisely the reason they couldn't and didn't obtain it. It is not good to try. That's not meritorious. God won't look at that and say, well, I respect that you tried. No, He won't. It is not good to try. What is needed is to die. No wonder the Gospel was so offensive then to the Jewish people. No wonder Paul is running such a great risk of his life being taken. It it called all the works of Israel worthless. All their effort worthless. Their best and most dedicated efforts were absolute garbage and filthy rags in the sight of God, and it let them know that all along, God has had the same saving and gracious heart for all nations that He had for them. It's not fun to find out that you're not as special as you thought. They were not the goal of God's plan. They were a means to the end of the goal of God's plan. But Gentiles, here's the thing, non-Jewish people like me will find it offensive, the gospel that is, for almost all the same reasons. I mean, how dare this God presume we are so sinful and evil. We know what evil is. We see it out there. We see it outside of us. There are serial killers in the world and rapists. And yes, that's horrendously evil. But we're not talking about a human court here. We're talking about the holiness of Almighty God. And it's not just by not being really bad that you're good enough. Because as Jesus says, no, 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 you have to be perfect. That, that command still stands. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when you hear that, what does it do to you? If you're honest, you're laying dead and laid bare before God because you know you won't be perfect, even as a Christian. But we're, we have to be. So what do we do? Oh, the cross is so... Offensive. How dare God presume we're so evil that the only path, the only way we can have salvation, the only way is the life, death, and resurrection of someone else. God's son, the Jewish man, on our behalf. And we may only partake in him if we have faith in him that he's done this for us. How can we be that bad? That's very insulting, God. And that's not the real problem of the world anyway. Yes, it is, beloved. The evil that resides in the heart and this blindingly ignorant idea we have that it isn't there in us is precisely what has cursed the world. The cross is offensive foolishness to both Jews and Gentiles. We may have various ethnic and cultural differences and we even have regional differences in countries, but in our hearts we are all exactly the same. And that is prideful, selfish, and spiritually dead and desperately in need of a miracle 
of God's power or salvation will not happen. And until we actually believe that, the gospel will get annoying. Paul gives us two reasons in this text for why he is eager to preach the gospel and why he is not ashamed of it. First, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jews first, absolutely, and then non-Jews. And the message is the power of God to save. So much so that later Paul says faith comes by hearing this message. Just preach the message and it will do the work. It is the power of God, not the speaker, not the vessel it comes through. Our strategies, our techniques, our input, our desperate attempt to figure out how to get more people to believe it, beloved, it is completely unnecessary. And it's probably harmful, to be honest, because it makes salvation purely a matter of a better argument or enough pressure until a person finally yields. But that's not the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation is not in manipulating somebody's emotions. The power of God for salvation isn't in dimming the lights so that enough people don't see them so they're not ashamed to raise their hand. It's not having every head bowed and every eye closed so that nobody sees what happens. No, every eye open, every head up. The gospel is in and of itself the full power of God for salvation. The power of conversion is in the message it's in the Word. The Word of God gives life. It creates where there is nothing. There's no need to manipulate. There's no need to smooth the road here. In fact, if we want to know how much faith a Christian has in the Gospel, just find out how much they think has to be done and that they have to do in order to get people to believe it. You'll find out where a person's faith actually is. The second reason Paul is eager to preach it and is unashamed of it is because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That, beloved, is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. Because the righteousness that saves people is finally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So in the last sentence of verse 17... Paul reveals that the essence of the message of the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's why the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That had been explained already in the Old Testament, namely in Habakkuk 2.4, which is what he quotes here. He quotes a minor prophet. Minor are the prophets whose books are shorter than the major prophets, the longer ones. Paul says, you've been resisting this. The world, Israel mainly, has been rejecting what God had clearly said a very long time ago. That the righteousness he requires comes by faith. At the outset of the letter in chapter 1, Paul claims that the gospel of God concerning his son was actually not something that just came about in the book of Matthew. What we know is the book of Matthew. Matthew wasn't even written at this time. But it wasn't something that Paul was creating or anybody else was creating. It had been the witness of all Old Testament Scripture. He said that in the first five verses. Now he sets out for the rest of the letter to prove it. There's no reason then, Paul is saying, 
for this message I'm preaching to be rejected on the grounds that it's unbiblical or it's unrighteous. For in it, the very power and righteousness of God are being revealed, meaning they had not been revealed like this by anything before the gospel or after the gospel. Jesus performed the events that are the contents of the gospel. Remember, the main argument Romans is making about its theme, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, is the witness of all Scripture, of the whole Old Testament. The entire body of Romans, the whole letter, is making an argument to support Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul's opponents among the Christians in Rome are either questioning them or outrightly denying those two statements. The gospel is the power of God because it reveals God's righteousness. That means the law and the covenant that went with it and the people in it did not reveal the power and righteousness of God for salvation. The old covenant didn't make people God's people. In God's design, it showed people what was necessary for them to be His people because their effort and works aren't going to do it. Habakkuk 2.4 is Paul's first and foundational proof that his gospel is what the Old Testament taught. We all know we don't see it written with that kind of clarity in the Old Testament. So how is Paul going to make this argument? He starts with Habakkuk. This passage means, then, when Paul puts it here, we know now how to read Habakkuk. How to read the whole Old Testament. And Habakkuk means that the way of faith is the way of God's righteousness and has the power to make people alive so that they believe. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Literally, in the Greek text, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The God of the Old Testament is the gracious God of the gospel. Paul reveals that the righteousness of God is when God is faithful to his word. Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4, this is just a quote of Habakkuk 2, 4, but 2, 1 through 4 shows us one who took a stand to watch for a vision, to look and see what God will say to me. This passage is the answer to a second prophetic lament from Habakkuk. That's what Habakkuk chapter 2 is. It's an answer to Habakkuk's lament earlier. The prophet lamented the fact that there was so much evil in the world and threatening Israel, and it seemed as if God wasn't going to do anything. In chapter 1, verse 13 of Habakkuk, he wrote, Thou who art of purer eyes than to behold evil, why dost thou look on faithless men and art silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he? So really the problem with Habakkuk is the age-old problem of evil. God, why won't you do anything about evil? Why do you let it grow? Why do you let it increase? Why do you let it get so out of hand? I thought you were righteous. I thought you were good. They've been asking that since the dawn of time, basically. God gives an answer to his prophet. He says, listen, write down the vision I'm about to give you and make it plain upon tablets so that he may run who reads it. The vision reveals that at the appointed time, the coming one, the promised seed and Messiah, he will be the final victory and vindication of God over evil. It will happen. So God's answer to Habakkuk's lament is one of reassurance. Listen, the wheels of my providence turn slowly. But they turn perfectly. The righteous one in Habakkuk then, that is, the one who is in a right relationship with God, 
who waits in steadfast trust for this vision to come true, believes in and waits in trust for the Messiah who makes all things right. That's what God tells him to give his heart peace by one's faith in the coming one from Habakkuk's point of view. God declares one righteous and therefore that one shall live. Beloved Habakkuk 2.4 is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So Paul was not guilty of reading anything of his own theology into the Bible. He is explaining the Bible. He's exegeting it, right? Telling us what it means, explaining the words on the page. God is the one speaking in Habakkuk. God was proclaiming the gospel all the way back in the Old Testament. That justification before him is by faith alone, faith in his promise. Everything Paul teaches here, including that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's part of the Bible's Old Testament teaching. The Bible declares that anyone who is righteous, to be righteous, is to be in a right relationship with God. And the means by which he or she became righteous is nothing other than faith in Christ, the promised one. One believes in the promise of God in Christ, therefore that person shall live what we so desperately need to realize is that justification by faith, how a person is made right with God, how a person is considered by God to be righteous, is the heart and soul of all theology. All of it. It's the central message in the Bible. That Therefore, it's the central message in all theology. All thinking about God, all opinions and conclusions and beliefs about God, the righteousness of God. Martin Luther wrestled with this phrase so much. The reformer who started everything. What was the righteousness of God? Was it, as most claimed and probably still think, the righteousness God demands that we have in order to be right with Him? Is that a righteousness? God's righteousness is something we're working for, right? We have to attain it by our obedience to the law or our own goodness right that that makes some sense all of us have a natural sense of what is right and wrong inside of us we've all again little ones are the best examples of so much theological truth right you've seen the look on a baby's face when they're about to touch what you told them not to touch they're looking at you and their eyes are saying you remember that i said not to touch the bottle of water and they're looking at you and they're looking at the water and then they touch right that's you don't have to teach that we all know inside that something is wrong. Something is off. We can't be what we want to be. Even if God isn't even in the equation, we realize something is missing. I'm off. Something is faulty, which is why the message of the world today is, no, you're not. Everything about you is beautiful and wonderful, and you should be accepted no matter what. And, of course, if you, don't, if you aren't like that, we won't accept you. And so it's, it's you know, a big, giant Contradiction, but that doesn't matter. It's not based in truth anyway, right? So it doesn't matter if it's a contradiction. But is that why? I mean, God has written His law in our hearts. All of us know, even if we reject it, that what God wants is what is right. So we naturally conclude from that, as sinful, cursed humans, that the way to God then of obtaining the righteousness of God. His standard must be in doing what is right. Then we'll be righteous before Him. Martin Luther thought about this and said to himself, Okay, but my personal experience 
is that even with all my religious devotion, I've never been successful enough for long enough in performing the righteousness God demands. Right? Guys like Luther, the reformers of the time, Melanchthon and some of the others, were saying to themselves, how can that be the righteousness of God? You don't get more devout than us and we can't do it. But furthermore, as an interpreter of Scripture, a rigorous one, Luther noticed that Romans was completely unclear and impossible to understand if this righteousness of God was what we achieved if we wanted to be God's children because that's not how Romans explains the righteousness of God at all. And then it dawned on him. Romans dawned on him. Since the righteousness of God is the contents of this gospel, which is what Paul is writing here, since the righteousness of God is the contents of this gospel, it means that the righteousness of God is an action God does to us. A gracious, redeeming action on God's part for us. The righteousness of God is the righteousness He gives through the gospel. It's His and He's giving it to us. Jonathan Grothy says, this is a very good quote. Take some time to think about it is what God does for man in Christ that saves, not what He does in man, in Christ, and by the gospel. Meaning, the gospel does not simply show us what we need to do. Not at all. It, it's, not a, it's, it's not a command. It's a proclamation. The gospel doesn't Show us the righteousness we're now to live by if we want to be saved. In fact, the gospel is the message that God gives us the righteousness of Christ and therefore we are saved. Receive this. The way we live after justification has nothing to do with how we're justified. We know this. We know this. No, we don't. And if you tell me you do, I'm going to tell you, I'm sorry. No, you don't. Because if this was such a no-brainer, like if you just needed to say it once, just, just say it once and get it out of the way, yes, we know we're not saved by our works, right? Then what is the New Testament all about? If this was such a no-brainer, the New Testament would look very different. Just Again, just read Paul's 13 letters in light of Christ coming and doing what he did the way that he did it and saying what he said. We do not naturally believe this. We don't easily or willingly believe the gospel. It's foolishness to us. And it never stops being foolishness to the flesh. Ever. We do not naturally come to this. We have to be taught it again and again and again, which is why Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians in Rome. Like, I've got to tell it to you. You've got to hear it again. And you've got to let me explain it even more deeply. I can't wait to get there. You can picture them saying, well, we, that's great. You know, it's great to be reminded. I love hearing that. You know, I, I, it's a great reminder. We really appreciate it. Beloved, there's a sense in which we need to be converted every single day. Not actually saved again, absolutely not, or the blood of Jesus Christ would be pretty ineffective, but it isn't. The fact of the matter is, is that we still are in the flesh. We still live in this world, and our flesh is not going to accept this. 
has to be taught again and again and again, or Paul wasted a lot of papyrus leaves, a lot of them, which is what they wrote on. Beloved, this isn't something we can simply assume, and we can't assume that others know that is true when we talk about righteousness. You can't assume the gospel. To assume it eventually adjusts it, and then eventually it's lost and it's gone. We have to be crystal clear on the difference between justification, how a person is made right with God, and sanctification, by which God progressively makes us more like His Son. Especially, we have to be certain of this, in our own hearts, because we can't export what we don't have. And we have an obligation to preach this gospel free to the world, to every person we meet and know. Another quote, it is important not to mix the chaff of works with the wheat of grace. I love that. We, we cannot shift the emphasis in salvation to life change. I used to be like this, now I'm like this. No, no, you're the same person. You're the same person. You've stacked on some good deeds that are good, that are the opposite of things that you used to do, if you can remember your life before you came to Christ. We can't shift the emphasis so that obedience to God becomes the goal of the gospel. No, 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 no. If that was the, the case, he would just have the power to save us, not give us righteousness. We can't change the emphasis so that the real work of the gospel, what it's really doing, is how we behave after we've received salvation. Beloved, the real work of the gospel is something only the gospel can do, not us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All of it. Start, middle, and finish. You and I have zero power to contribute to this. The real work of the gospel is the salvation of sinners by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Full stop. Period. God's gracious gift of righteousness to us, humbly received by our empty hands, is the forgiveness of sins. That makes us completely righteous. And I'm not going to add a single caveat this morning. Now understand, you know, understand this means, of course, that your life has to change or something like that. Because if you'll notice, the text doesn't do that. The text doesn't do that. It doesn't explain anything about the necessity of my works in the thesis statement of the letter. Nothing. It's just telling me what the gospel is and what the gospel does. We don't need to come in behind God with an, now, what he really means here is, no, 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 God knows what he wants to say. God knows what he wants to say. Faith is a gift that is created in us by the word of God and the gospel. We'll get there, Romans 10, 14 through 17. So the righteousness which is given to a person through faith, that is entirely God's gift to us. It's not something we're contributing we live out of what's in our account. We don't deposit into it. When we read the phrase, the righteousness of God, it is the righteousness from God, offered as a gift in Jesus Christ, received by those who have faith. The comfort of being made right with God, then, is not found in any present experience of transformation we have. That's not where the assurance of it being true is. That's not how I know it happened. 
and is certainly not in any of the good works that result from my salvation. Assurance that we are saved and in a right relationship with God is in the declaration, in the gospel, the message outside of me, coming into me by God's power. My assurance is the declaration of the forgiveness of sins because of the victory God has won through Jesus Christ to give people the righteousness He requires. The whole purpose of creation was for God to say, here's what you need. You can't do it, so I'm going to give it to you. And we'll live together in glory forever. That's what the Bible's about. It's what Christianity is about. This is the message of the gospel. No strings attached or it isn't the gospel. It's not, we, we don't just rob the gospel. We don't just pollute it when we take away from it. We pollute it just as much, if not worse, when we add to it. This righteousness of God that saves us and makes us right with Him, He says, is from faith for faith in verse 17. It's all faith. Works are not here. Now, He's going to get to all of this, but in, in light of this, so it's going to sound different as we go through it. But it begins and ends in faith. Some translations even say from faith to faith. It is not from faith to works. That's, that's not the progression They are completely separate, faith and works. Completely separate. In other words, the fact that God gives us His righteousness in Christ as a gift is realized by faith so that the one who believes it has faith. It is a righteousness intended for faith that can only be obtained by faith. And it's revealed only in the preaching of the gospel. And that's this If you believe in Jesus Christ and what He has done for you, if you receive that, you are and will be saved. Period. So, how do each one of you, as you consider this in your mind, answer the question, what is the righteousness of God? If I were to ask you that, what would you tell me? Because your answer to that question is the answer to the question of whether you actually believe the gospel. Believing that our works contribute something to our salvation, anything, is an attempt to be justified by the law. And again, that's not good. It's not praiseworthy. It's not respectable. It certainly isn't neutral. It's antichrist, based on Romans 1. It's actively denying. Actively What God says is the only thing that justifies, which is faith by itself. And faith is not a clever way to cover for works. God doesn't give with one hand and take away with the other. It's not bad news or the real story after you get saved. See, we got you in the door with this technique or program or pressure that we worked up. Now let's tell you what is really required of you. No, 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 no. No. Yeah, but what if... Don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry about anybody else. The more you question other people, the more you're going to question yourself. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And perfect love casts out fear. When God says faith justifies, He means it. In fact, faith like a little child. So what does a kid know? Nothing. 
And when you hold out your arms and say, jump, they jump. Why? Because they believe you'll catch them. What is it to be a Christian? Jump. You say, well, you know, that's not based on facts. Yes, it is. It's based on the work that this man did in real history. You can look it up. When God says faith justifies, He means that even the simplest and most basic belief that the only hope I have for salvation is Jesus. Let's say that's all you understand. That He died to forgive me of my sins and rose again to grant me His righteousness. I come to Him. I receive Him. Please forgive me of my sins. Please take me in based on Your blood and Your righteousness. That belief saves. It saves completely. There's nothing wrong with that. There is zero fat on that kind of faith. And beloved, what justifies us doesn't change after we're saved. Justification is not the way in. And then salvation becomes a matter of what I do in recognition of the gift. The gift of faith never stops being active in me as the means of my salvation. It, holding on to it, receiving it, doesn't switch hands of obligation once I've received the gift. A gift is always a gift, right? It never stops, faith never stops being the means of justification, ever. It's how a person is made right with God, period, forever. Faith is the antithesis of the flesh that wants so badly to give something towards our justification. And God literally says, no, I won't take it. I'm not adding to what my son did. I don't need to. This is enough. Stop trying so hard and just receive it. Not one single second that our Lord Jesus lived here was in vain for me. I need all of it. I need every second of his life here. Every second of it. From conception to death to resurrection to ascension. I need all of his refusal to sin because I hardly ever refuse to sin. I need all the good works he did because I do not do enough. I need every drop of his blood because I'm always sinful in one way or the other. I need the full life-giving, righteousness-giving power of his resurrection. I need all of it or I will not be saved. He does all of it or I can't have it, period. What if we defined our Christian lives that way instead of, all right, I hear you, I'll do it. No, we won't. Believing in that is all it takes, not because God is cheap. Isn't that kind of cheap? No, 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 no. It's because the life and death and resurrection of Jesus are worth more than the galaxy. The whole world is not enough to pay for one human soul. Jesus says that. What good does it do if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That means the whole world is not the price of a soul. It doesn't even... Only the blood and righteousness of Christ can redeem and purchase a human soul. Receiving salvation, then, is not a matter of good versus bad. It's a matter of flesh versus faith for justification. Salvation is not moving from vice to virtue. It's moving from vice and virtue to faith alone. Nothing else. Faith looks away from the self for hope of salvation. So, beloved, this morning we are completely passive in this. 
Nothing is required for salvation. Receive Him. Receive Jesus. His blood was shed for you. His righteousness was offered up for you. Open the gift. It's for all who believe. And for those who already do, you really can rest. The Holy Spirit will produce in you what God requires based on the authority of God's Word. You really needn't fear a single thing. The gift is yours, and since God gave it, it cannot be taken away.